Thank you, Andrea. Just again, hear it from my mouth as well. If you're here and you're new this morning, um, we'd love to have you over for lunch today. So um, come find me afterwards or find my wife, Joy. Joy, raise your hand and we will tell you uh, where we live. We'd love to, to be able to, to get to know you a little bit better. Well, as I said uh, earlier, in fact, if you are new, my name is Derek. Uh, I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you, uh, I would love to. And we are entering a new season and a new sermon series uh, today. This is the season of Advent, like we talked about before. And during Advent, for the next four weeks, between now and Christmas, uh, we are in a, a series called The Surprising Branches of God's Family Tree. Now, I don't know what one of your favorite Christmas movies is, uh, but one of my favorite Christmas movies is Christmas Vacation. And uh, I love all of the cast of characters that are all gathered around. You've got Cousin Eddie, you know, who pulls in his RV and unloads all the waste into the storm sewer. And you've got Aunt Bethany, who wraps up her cat as a Christmas present. And Uncle Lewis, you know, with his big stogie that ends up setting the Christmas tree on fire. You know, good comedy writers will tell you that it's the funniest when it's the truest. And I think that the reason why something like Christmas Vacation is funny to us is because we all kind of have those people in our family somewhere, right? We all have a kind of a Cousin Eddie and an Aunt Bethany and an Uncle Lewis. They are either in our family now or they're somewhere in our family tree. Now, let me say this, though. If you were writing a genealogy, if you were writing the story, the family tree of the most important man in the world... The king, let's say, who was coming, and you were writing down all of the people that filled his family tree. You would probably write it in such a way that really built that guy up. That really was full of wonderful people. You would probably leave out the Cousin Eddie's uh, of the world. In fact, if I were kind of writing down um, my genealogy, there's probably a few people I might leave out of mine. That's the way that most of us function. It's not the way that the Bible actually functions. When you open up the book of Matthew, what you find is that as he introduces us to Jesus, he gives a genealogy. He gives us the rundown of Jesus' lineage. And in that lineage, there are a lot of really surprising people. There are five women in that lineage, in that genealogy. Now, first of all, that should be a bit of a surprise. It would have been a bit of a surprise to the first readers because they wouldn't have been accustomed to seeing women in the genealogy. So the fact that there are five women in the genealogy is kind of a big deal. But who these women are is an even bigger deal. Uh, Of these five women, three are Gentiles. They're not Jewish, so they're outsiders of some sort. Four of them are involved in some sort of kind of sexual scandal of some way. Uh, Two were, were abused. One is an unwed teen mother. This is really not kind of the list of southern bells that you might just kind of roll out as look at the beautiful women in your history. These are actually scandalous women, but they show up in the family tree of God as he announces the coming of his son, the king. We're going to look at four of those five women over the next four weeks, and we're going to start by looking at the story of a woman named Tamar. She shows up in Genesis chapter 38, so it's too long of a chapter to have printed it in the bulletin. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Genesis 38. If not, there are some Bibles back there on the back table if you'd like to grab one and follow along with me. Or it's okay just simply to listen if you would prefer to do that. This is the story of Tamar and of Judah. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. 
There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur's Ju- Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and rise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And God put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that Shelah would also die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tinmah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tinmah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and she covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up. And she sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Tinmah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and he said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. So Judah said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and she went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah, and he said, I have not found her. And also the men of the place said, no cult cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Well, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, and she said, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And he said, Please identify, and she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them, and he said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tried to tie a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew his hand back, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Boy, Lord, this is, uh, this is a heavy passage. 
We ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through your word that oftentimes comes uh, in very surprising ways to us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't pull punches. Thank you, Lord, that you don't um, feel the need to clean everything up before you give it to us. Thank you that we can actually come to your word as truth, even when it's raw and difficult kind of to handle. I pray that you would speak through this word this morning, that you might change our hearts and that we might see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're really just going to step through this story today and particularly do uh, a character study on Tamar and the other character in this story, Judah. Tamar's name means palm tree. Now, palm tree in the ancient world would have been a sign of beauty and it would have been a sign of fruitfulness. The story doesn't match well her name, does it? She's not given children until many years later. In fact, the first thing that we learn about Tamar, first of all, she's probably very young. Oftentimes in the ancient world, uh, daughters would have been married off as teenagers, and those marriages would have been arranged. And so Judah chooses her as the wife for his son Ur. And we are told right out of the bat that Ur is not a good guy. He is evil man. You know, it's interesting, uh, if you go through the Bible up to this point, 38 chapters of Genesis, you have a brother who kills another brother, you have a whole culture that is so wicked that God brings a flood on the world, you have uh, people doing a lot of really despicable things, but this is the first time that you see God inflicting the death penalty on one person, singling him out for his wickedness. Ur was not a good guy, and the Lord took his life because of his wickedness. Now, oftentimes that's what we focus on and we forget that Tamar was married to a wicked man. Tamar, a young woman, probably in her mid to late teens, in her first marriage, was married to a very evil person. Some of you know what it feels like to be married to somebody who is unkind or who takes advantage of you or who is untruthful or who is not to be trusted You know the pain that that brings. You know what it's like to have a spouse who is evil in some way. Well, in that culture, though, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of protection for her. But the one thing really that probably would have been worse than having an evil husband would have been having no husband. Because the women in that culture were really protected by their husbands and by their children. They would not have had uh, rights to the property. And so the husband would have provided that. And her children then being brought into up in that heritage would have provided for her. And if you are husbandless, if you are a widow, it can be really like being hung out to dry. Now, again, some of you are also widows. You know what it's like to lose a spouse. And you know the pain that that is. Fortunately, I think most of our widows are fairly sufficient in themselves, but that was not the case with Tamar. It was difficult for her. So there was actually a process that God had laid out that we see later in Deuteronomy as an explicit part of his law, but that's presented here called Leverite marriage. And this was a process that was supposed to protect widows so that they might be cared for, so that they might be given a heritage. And this is how it went, is that if a husband died, then actually the closest kin of his, probably his brother, would would marry, would take that husband's wife and would have children with her and then would raise up those children in his brother's name. 
so that that wife would then have her own children and be able to have that heritage of children and of sons and of property and to be able to pass that on. It was a very selfless act, actually, of a brother-in-law to be able to do that, to give children that would not bear his own name, but that would bear his brother's name and would be a part of that heritage and not his own. So Judah gives his next son, Onan, to Tamar as part of this Leverite marriage procedure. But Onan is just as wicked as Ur, and he decides, you know what, I don't really want to raise up children for my brother. I'd rather not have children that are mine, that I produce, that have somebody else's name and somebody else's inheritance and somebody else's heritage, because then I don't get it myself, and I'm bound to this. And so Onan, in a very selfish way, actually takes part in the marital uh, rights he has as a husband, but not actually in the marital responsibilities. He takes part in the part that he probably wants to take part in. He enjoys the pleasure of it, but he does not take part in the responsibility. He does not actually give her children that she will then be able to raise up in her late husband's name. Friends, really, this is, uh, this is a description of abuse. This is a description of sexual abuse happening in this family. To take the thing that you want without giving the thing that the other needs, is an abusive process. Tamar had to live with an evil husband. She has been widowed. And now she has another husband who is taking advantage of her, who is abusing her. And the Lord recognizes this, and he puts Onan to death as well. It is good, I think, for us to just pause here and say... um, Is there hope for someone like Tamar? Is there someone that actually seeks out justice for those who are oppressed, for those who are victimized? The answer is yes, and we're going to get to it in a little bit. But the story actually continues, and Tamar's story in a lot of ways gets worse. Because Judah, her father-in-law, he he, kind of realizes, you know, let's see, I've had two sons. They've both been put to death uh, by the Lord. Something's going on here. And for Judah, he doesn't think, well, maybe it's because my sons were worthless sons and they were wicked and the Lord put them to death because they were evil and they were terrible husbands. And maybe that should reflect a little bit on me, their father. That's not his course of thinking. His course of thinking instead is, hmm, maybe there's something wrong with this Tamar chick. Maybe that's the problem here. Because, you know, one thing kind of seems to be constant, and it's Tamar. And even though I've got this third son that now should be in line for me to give to her which he does on the surface, he's afraid. And so he sends Tamar off as a widow to live with her parents. And at the same time, he actually betrothes his youngest, who many commentators would say might be as much as 20 years younger, uh, to Tamar. Now, think about this for a second. That sounds okay at the beginning, but she is sent to live with her mom and dad, and she's a widow, and she's betrothed to someone who her uh, father-in-law has no intention of marrying her to. So she's got to live as a widow, but she's betrothed, which means she can't look for a husband. She's got the worst of both worlds going on. And Judah is content to just kind of put her away. This is our picture of Tamar. She is discarded. She is left alone. She is abused. She is a victim. Now let me pause again to just say, uh, in a room this size, sociologists will tell you that there are a handful of victims. 
of people who can identify very clearly with someone like Tamar. There are people uh, in this room who have been abused, who have been mistreated, who have been cast aside, who have been abandoned, who have been left. There are those who have been hurt by a spouse. There are those who have been hurt by a parent. There are those who have been hurt by a a, a manager or a boss. Uh, In a room this size, we can probably count quite a few people who can very much identify with Tamar. Is there someone who can come and provide justice? There is. But we got someone else to talk about first. And that's Judah. He's the other character in this story. Judah, again, is the son of Jacob. He is one of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you read through the rest of the Bible, you see his name come up a lot because there's a whole tribe named after him. In fact, later on, there will be a whole nation, the whole southern part of Israel, and the whole nation of, of, of Israel will really be called Judah. It will be a whole, uh, a whole nation that, that bears his name. And this is the guy that we get that bears the name of this tribe of one of God's people is a man who goes uh, at all costs (laughs) to get away from this one who he thinks might be infecting his family. As the story goes on, Judah, his wife, dies, and he mourns her for a while, and then he goes to the sheep shearing festival. He goes to shear his sheep, which in those days, most commentators would say the sheep shearing festival was a place, yeah, where they would take the wool off of the sheep, but it was kind of a big party. They would have a lot of fun doing it. The wine would flow pretty freely. Uh, It's kind of like Mardi Gras. We spent three and a half years in South Louisiana. Uh, Mardi Gras is a big party. And actually in Baton Rouge, where we were from, uh, St. Patrick's Day is a big deal. And there was a St. Patrick's Day parade that would come right through our neighborhood. And so every St. Patrick's Day, we would walk from our house down to the street where the parade would come. And it was fun, you know, people traveling along on this parade and they would throw things at you and all, everybody would have fun. But it was kind of interesting. I mean, you would just watch these people. I think, <laughs> I think if you could start at the beginning of the parade and then watch them toward the end of the parade, you would just watch them get drunker and drunker as the parade goes by, right? Because they're up there having their own party. And you're just kind of there to watch their party go by. It's like a traveling frat party that just makes its way through the neighborhood. And when it's finished, the neighborhood looks like there was a frat party there too. This is kind of, I think, what the sheep shearing festival was like. So Judah goes to this sheep shearing frat party and probably, again, the text doesn't tell us, but probably is a little bit overserved. And he is on his way back and forth in this party, and he stops alongside the road because he sees what he thinks is a prostitute. A cult prostitute, we learn later, which is a prostitute really in the service of a particular pagan god. And so here, our Judah, the namesake of this tribe of Israel, stops alongside the road and decides that he would like to purchase what she's selling. But he doesn't have anything to pay her with, and so he promises her that he will send her a young goat which also probably indicates that he had been drinking a lot because that was a pretty hefty price to pay. He's going to send her a young goat, but he didn't have that goat with him. And so uh, as a promise, he's going to give her a pledge. And he gives her as a pledge uh, his signet ring, which is his mark, the cord uh, of which that ring hangs, and his staff. So a wealthy person of that day would have had their own kind of mark, a signet that would have marked uh, any correspondence that came from them that would have said, this is actually coming from Judah and it has his own particular mark on it. That's the signet. 
The cord would have been the thing uh, around which that signet would have been would have would have hung. It would have been carried. So that would have been the cord that carried the signet ring. And then there's the staff, which is another really personal thing. It's a sign of power. It probably also bears his mark. It's a very personal thing. All three of these things are very personal. So it's really like he's giving her his license and his credit card. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to come back. I'm going to bring you this goat. Here's my license. Here's my credit card. Hold that, you know, as a pledge to make sure that you know that I'm good for it. And I'm going to come back. Well, when he comes back, she's not there. He sends his friend back, actually, to bring the goat, and she's not there. And then Judah kind of freaks out, and he doesn't know what to do. Because he doesn't want to be exposed. He doesn't want to be made a fool of himself. So he just says, let's just, just forget the whole thing. Uh, I'll figure out how to find a new signet and a new staff, and we'll just forget about it. Don't look for her anymore, because I don't want to be made a fool. Well, in the course of time, then, he gets word. Somebody comes and says, uh, you know, Tamar... Your daughter-in-law, she's living with her parents, but um, I've seen something, you know, that seems to be a little out of place. She's pregnant. And since she's betrothed to your youngest, uh, who, by the way, you haven't given to her, and since she's a widow, she's pregnant by immorality. And so Judah goes off the handle, and he says, bring her here, we're going to try her, and we're going to burn her. Which was way more severe than the law called for in those cases. And he brings her up there, and he is ready to drop the hammer on her. And she lays out the signet ring and the cord and the staff. And she says, here's the father. (laughs) And Judah, at that point, realizes what's happened. Now, let me pause again to say that in a room this size, not only are there victims, but there are people who can probably really identify with Judah too. There are victimizers among us. There are those who not only have felt the sting of someone else's adultery, someone else's abuse, someone else's lies, but actually who have been the person inflicting the sting. There are not only people who have felt the difficulty of a harsh manager at work, but there have been the harsh managers at work who have inflicted pain on others. Not only, you know, sons and daughters who have felt abuse from their parents or, uh, or, or felt like their parents have left or abandoned them, but there's also parents who have left or abandoned. There's Judas among us as well. So we need to also ask the question, is there someone who can come and deal not only with the Tamars of this world, but who also can deal with the Judas of this world, who can come and give justice, but can also give forgiveness and mercy? Friends, here's the the beauty of this story, is that the answer is yes. There is someone who has come to give both peace and comfort to those who have been wounded and to give conviction and forgiveness to those who have done the wounding. And his name is Jesus, and he is the king. He is the king that Matthew lays out for us in this first chapter. As he tells of this family tree, this is the king that he lays out out for us. There is hope for those who are victims and there is hope for those who are victimizers. You know, there's more actually to this story. If you fast forward in the story of Judah, what you find is something pretty amazing. 
In Genesis 44, a few chapters later, you find the story of, of, uh, of Joseph being sold into slavery. And he's there. He's risen up to power in Egypt. And he's brought his brothers in. And he finally reveals himself as who he is. And all of his brothers get together. But Joseph kind of pulls a trick on him. And he, and, he, and he keeps Benjamin, the youngest, aside with him so that they'll go and tell his father to come so that he can see his father. That's what happens in, in Genesis 44. But Judah has a pretty amazing role in that. In fact, what you see in Genesis 44 is Judah then pleading with Joseph, saying this, let me stay instead of Benjamin, my young brother. Why don't you take me and I'll be your servant. You can throw me in jail. I'll be your slave. Take me and bind me and release Benjamin. Let him go back to his, to his dad and take me instead. It's really, it's really a beautiful picture of grace and the way that it changes someone's life when you see judah later in his life he's actually not the self-centered person that we see him as in genesis 38 he's actually showing himself to be very selfless and tamar this broken woman shows up in jesus's genealogy in matthew 1 she shows up as the great 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 grandmother of the king of the Messiah. This woman whose name means palm tree. She's the great ancestor of the one before whom the crowds would lay down palm branches. And say, Hosanna, the king, the Messiah is here. The ones that they would the, the proclaim as royal and majestic. And Tamar gets to be included in that. Here's the point. If someone like Tamar... And someone like Judah can show up in Jesus' family tree, then they can also show up in Jesus' family now. If you feel like you identify with Tamar, if you are wounded and hurt and broken, first of all, I want you to know that you are welcome here. And secondly, I want you to know that you are welcome in Jesus' family. He has come to give comfort to those who hurt. He has come to give justice to those who are victims. He has come to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. And if you identify with Judah, let me also say that you're welcome here. And you are welcome into God's family as he calls us all to come and to repent, to lay our failings, our sins before him and to turn to him for forgiveness, that we might be renewed that we might be forgiven. If you are carrying the weight of something deep in your past, now is a great time to come and unload it on Jesus and to receive his forgiveness. There is a space in God's family tree for people like Tamar and like Judah, and there is a space in God's family for people like you and I. That's why we're here. That's why we're here to celebrate Advent, to celebrate the coming of the King who would bring not only righteousness and justice and judgment to those who are wronged, but would bring forgiveness and mercy to us. That's what we celebrate this Advent. That's what we celebrate this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll spend just a few minutes reflecting on that story. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you, uh, you chose to put somebody like Tamar in Jesus' genealogy. That you chose to put someone like Tamar in your word. That we might come and identify with her. That we might see someone who is wounded and hurt. 
that we might see someone who is oppressed, and that we might celebrate you, the one who breaks the chains of the oppressors and who frees those who are oppressed. Lord, we have to look at ourselves and see both Tamar and Judah in the mirror. We have to look at ourselves and see those who have been wounded by others, and we have to look at ourselves and see those who have wounded others. Lord, we need your comfort and your peace, and we need your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for coming to give all of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.